So let's take our Bibles and let's head over to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. We are doing a series that I mentioned already at the beginning of the service. Well, what we are talking about from week to week is different areas of our life that we can be growing in, that we can be working on so as to strengthen our grip so as to get a better handle on such things that we've been talking about is anger, dealing with our forgiveness, dealing with our relationships with others. How can we be sure that we're on our way to heaven? Then the last few weeks we've been talking about family and hopefully helping, trying to encourage families to just do a better job. I was reading about one family, one couple, that they needed some help. This one family, they were getting up in years, and they were always at odds about finances, about handling the finances. And so what they did is every year, one of their big events was they would go to the county fair. And they would go there, and they would walk through, but the wife was always, when he wanted to do something, she was always, well, it's going to cost money, it's going to cost money. And there was one thing that would show up year after year, and that was a biplane, and they would give rides. And so for $10, you could get this ride for like 15 minutes in this biplane. And every year he would look and say, it sure would be nice to ride in that biplane. And she would respond, $10 is $10. And then they'd walk on by. So years went by, years went by. And so we pick up the story as I read to you what happened to him. At this one year at the state fair, Jake said to his wife, I'm 81 years old now, and if I don't take a ride in that airplane like now, I'll probably never take a ride in it. Martha, well, she said, Jake, it costs $10 to ride in that airplane, and $10 is $10. The pilot overheard their conversation, and he said, Hey, I see your dilemma. Let me help you out. i tell you what I'll do. I'll take you up in the airplane ride, and if you can both manage to make it through the entire ride without a single word, you can't say a single word now, it's free. But if you say a word, you both pay $10. The two thought, it's a deal. So they go up in the airplane. They get up to an altitude where the pilot decides to take dips and dives and turns and swirls and scare the bejeebers out of the both of them. It doesn't work. They don't say a word. So he tries harder, steeper rolls, etc., 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 and they don't say a word. He lands the plane. The pilot, he's all excited. He says to Jake, he says, he yells back there, I'm really impressed. I tried everything I could to get you two to yell out and to cry out something, and you didn't. And with that, he turned and saw Jake sitting there by himself, smiling. And Jake said, I was going to say something when Martha fell out of the plane after the first roll. But $10 is $10. (laughs) Okay, so we learn that some couples have problems when it comes to money, don't we? When it comes to family things, you know, there's a lot of people that... They have problems. And actually, the majority of people say that there's money problems when it comes to relationships with other people, even in marriage situations. And some have money problems when there's no marriage situation. They still have money problems. So what I wanted to talk about this morning and this evening, this morning I want to talk about how you can get richer. This morning I want to talk about some practical things you do that the Bible says about your monies that you can use or teach future generations. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles, if you hadn't been there, to, the I, to 1 Timothy 6, where there's a text about it. Let me, let me preface it by saying, the Bible talks a lot about money. There's a lot of passages. Um, Jesus spoke about it, where Jesus, in 11 out of his 39 parables, he talked about money. 15% of his preaching was about money or possessions. When you start going through the Bible and saying, how many verses are there they talk about money or possessions? There's some 2,300 verses, it is estimated, that refers to that. That is like taking all of these books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrew, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 2 3 John, Jude, Revelation. 2,300 verses is all of them together. So there's a lot of the Bible that talks about money, but at the same time, preachers aren't supposed to preach about it. You know, we're, we're scolded because people don't want to hear about it. Well, one of those texts that talks very frankly about it is 1 Timothy 6. 
What is happening in this text is Paul is writing, and as he's writing in this section of Scripture, he's giving Timothy different ideas about how to conduct himself in the church and what to teach people. He gets in chapter 6, and he talks about slaves and masters. So he's entered into the idea of making money. And then from there, he enters into a section of this passage where he's going to warn them about some people who are all about making money and in a bad way. It's the false teachers. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof comes envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw yourself. What's he talking about? What's he mean there? Well, he describes these guys who are the false teachers who are permeating his society, the churches at that time, and he describes who they are. They're people who don't give much meditation or reflection. They're basically off the handle with their teachings. They dote about... The word doting is the idea of infirm, sickly. It's their their teachings lack nourishment. They have, a, they have a bad bad detail to them that will cause, just like in their own minds, uh, a perversion, a confusion, um, an illness spiritually. And it goes, shows up in questionings and word wars. And he goes on, he says, they have strife and they have the railings or literally the blasphemies. They have disputings. They, they suspect everybody. These guys are all these things. These are the false teachers. They're power mongers. They're individuals who aren't consistent in their own lives. They like to dispute over things that really aren't that essential or that important. And one of the characteristics says they're very materialistic. And he points out, just like Peter does in Peter's epistle, that these guys are really about making money. He says that one of their themes is this idea, supposing gain is godliness. What's he mean by that? There's a couple possibilities. Back in those days, there was even amongst the Jews that Jesus had to contend with, there was this idea that if you have money, you're godly. Money equals God's blessing. So if you have money, that means God is really, really pleased with you. God is blessing you. And so that carried out into thinking that if you want God's blessings, make money. The more money you make, the more God is pleased with you. And is that the idea? Is that the idea? Or they had this idea that these false teachers may have carried it this way. Their idea was that this is my way of making money. What I'll do is I will go into ministry and I will be a huckster. I will be an under-shepherd that is fleecing the flock of God. Which one is it? I don't know. Is it both of these possibilities that they are teaching that idea that, that God is pleased to give you money, therefore get money, or that they're ripping off the church. That's a possibility. Both of them are there. But either way, is there even a realm today? Is there a group of preachers and teachers today that are all about this idea, gain is godliness? Yeah, there's a whole teaching. There's a whole philosophy that some of you may even watch on TV, some of these speakers and some of these preachers, that they talk in these modern days that if you follow God the way I tell you to follow God, you're going to get rich. In fact, some of them aren't even you know, subtle about it. If you send money to my ministry, God will bless you, and your wallet will never run dry, and you will make money yeah, if you send me a donation and a prayer request about a certain job, I'll pray for it, and you will become a millionaire. Some not so subtle. And some of them even add to this idea, it's not just money, but it's good health. You know, God doesn't want anybody to be sick. God doesn't want anybody to be poor. And they preach that and teach that. It's what we call today the gospel of prosperity. It is permeating Christendom. Most of our missionaries tell us this, that this is the most insidious teaching that is flooding their areas. Preachers coming along and saying the health and wealth gospel, that if you just do what we say, you're going to be wealthy and you're going to be healthy. I got news for you. Don't listen to anything I say about those areas because I can't guarantee you health or wealth. I just can't. I can give you the word of God. But even if you take in the Word of God, might God will it for you not to be rich? A lot of you should say, absolutely. Okay. 
Might God even will it that you as a Christian might go through some illness? A family member may die? Yeah, yeah. So we don't want to give these false ideas or these false encourages, encouragement. That's what these false teachers did. Their focus was on money, 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 money. So Paul is writing and saying you don't want to go that way. From such, withdraw yourself. Get away from those people. And then he says, here's what you need to adopt. Here's what you need to adapt to. He says basically in the next few verses, if you really want to get rich... Now, I just, I'm not contradicting myself because you'll see at the end, I will put it together. If you really want to have the wealth that God wants you, then do what he tells you in the next few verses. Do what he says. He's going to be very practical. He's going to say, number one, become content. Become content with what you have. Do you see, he gives a formula. Paul goes on after he's talked about those false teachers, and he says in verse 6, this is the formula to great wealth. Here's how you get it. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Understand the great gain here. He's in that context of talking about people saying, are you rich? Are you rich? And he is saying, what I am going to tell you, and he includes himself in it. He says, this this formula I'm giving you is for me, it's for you. This formula I'm going to give you, it is for the servants and masters I just talked about. This formula that I'm giving to you, it's for the widows that I talked about in chapter 5. It's for the older men, the younger men. It's for the older ladies, the younger ladies that I talked to at the beginning of the previous chapter. It is for the church leaders. It is for the church body. Here is the formula I'm giving you to experience great gain, to feel as if you are rich He says, the formula is very simple. It is that what you need to do to have even better than what the false teachers are giving you. You know, when we think of gain, we do this. We look and say, where's the best possibility to get the best interest? Where can I invest my monies in to get the greatest return for retirement, etc.? He says, this is it. Look at this. You start off with this thought. You start off with learning contentment. Learning to become content. If you're content, that is that inner peace, that that satisfaction, that idea that no matter what my circumstances, I'm okay. No matter what my bank account, I'm okay. I'm trusting in the Lord. The Lord's got this. It's the peace of mind, the peace of spirit that basically says, I have enough. It's what Paul says that I have learned to become content in whatsoever state. Real wealth, real understanding of wealth starts with contentment. Now, what he does is after he gives that formula, what he says is that I'm going to teach you you why you need to learn to be content and not to be greedy, not to be like those false teachers. And he basically describes physical riches, monies, lands, clothing of those days, um, their chariots, their homes, their property, same things that we value today. He says, I'm going to tell you some things about them and why you shouldn't chase after them. He, ba- he says this, they're not as good as the riches I'm talking about. The peace of heart. It is not as good. Well, he's already made that comment. He says, they talk about, the false teachers talk about gain, money. I'm talking about something greater than that. I'm talking about peace of spirit, peace of heart, satisfaction without being driven by it. And he makes a comment in verse 7. He says, they don't last as long. Look at verse 7. He says, this worldly possessions that sometimes we get caught up in or the false teachers are propagating, we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we're carrying nothing out. Well, you know that. We know that. We know that the riches that we have, you know, they're, they're fleeting. Look at your checking account. Okay. Follow it from month to month. Money goes in and it goes out sometimes faster than it came in. And so he's talking about, we don't see this. We don't see, you know, hearses pulling around U-Hauls. It's just not that way. It's what the the person of Proverbs says, do not toil for the wealth of this world. Be discerning enough to stop doing that. When your eyes light on the riches, understand it's gone. Riches, they sprout wings. They fly like the eagle. And you know that's true. You know that the monies that you make can easily disappear. You know that the houses and, and properties that we have, that they fade in time. The cars that we relish and that, that we, we crave over a period of time, they rust. They don't stay. And he says, now, 
be, be, understand, these riches of this life, they aren't as good as what I'm talking about. They don't last as long. And in fact, they, they aren't really going to give you the peace of heart that you want. Look what he goes on and makes his comment, where he says, Having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. What's he mean by that? He's saying, hey, listen, if you've got salvation, you've got Christ, believer, you've got the Word of God. He's already talked about this earlier in the book. You've got an opportunity to walk with the Lord, to read His Word. Beyond that, hey, listen, he says, you are rich. You are really a rich person. You have food and clothing. You know, you're doing great. Because money can't buy you the real riches of this world. To be really rich, it comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from the employer, the checking account. In fact, one writer put it this way. He said, yeah, money can buy us medicine. But money can't buy us good health. Money can buy us a house, but it can't buy us a home where there's peace inside. Money can buy companionship, but it doesn't buy real friends. And you know that's true. You know that's really true. That real friends stick by you even when you don't have anything. Money can't buy entertainment. can't buy entertainment, but it can't buy happiness. Money can buy food, but it doesn't buy the appetite. Money can buy a bed, but it doesn't buy sleep. Money can buy a crucifix, but it doesn't buy a savior. Money can make life you know, comfortable, but it doesn't provide eternal life. If you and I have Christ, we are rich. We are already wealthy individuals. Seneca, who wasn't even near scriptures, but he was a, a wise philosopher. He said, money has never yet made anyone really rich. You know, rich people can be people without peace in their heart. You who are born again, you can have the peace of God that passes all understanding. So he says, listen, if you've got Christ... If you've got to walk with the Lord, understand you are already rich. You want any greater riches than that? Well, stop getting caught up with this mindset that says, I need to make, make, make lots and lots and lots of money. Then I'll have peace. Money doesn't buy peace. It's walking with Christ. Besides, Money has an inherent, inherent danger to it. Watch how he describes it in the next few verses. He's talking, he says, to those people in the church here, those that would be rich. He's talking to those of us who might get caught up with the idea that my goal in life is to make lots of money. My goal in life is to be wealthy at such and such a point and be able to have these good things and these good toys and all, and that's a goal. A goal that dominates our schedules, our plans. A goal that drives us, that motivates us. Those who will be rich, it's the idea of lusting after possessions, positions, power, degrees. It's what we are inundated with every day when we turn on the TV or look at our computers and get the advertisements. We are, we are pummeled with ideas of you don't have enough. It isn't satisfying. You've got to have X, Y, Z to have real happiness. We see it all the time. It's a part of our regular culture when we drive down the street. It's just there in front of us. He says, okay, be careful. You who are born again, who live in that culture, be very careful. Because you will fall repeatedly. This isn't an if. It's saying this will happen. You will fall repeatedly, suddenly, into such things as this. Temptations. You will fall into a snare. You will fall into buying into the idea that something like a new vehicle that's newer than your one-year-old vehicle will all of a sudden satisfy you more. He says that is called emptiness. It doesn't deliver. He says that idea that you could even fall into hurtful lusts, which drown, which overcome people. Do people ever get overcome by debt? Because they want things and they are drowned by indebtedness? 
he goes on, he says, it can lead to destruction. Are families ever ruined by somebody who is so focused on getting things that they forget relationships all the time? Is it ever happened that somebody loses their reputation because they are so involved and ingrained in their idea that I've got to get ahead that they could lose their reputation by being dishonest just to get some more filthy lucre? Does that ever happen? Does it ever happen that some people ruin their own selves, their own bodies, by working, 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 and they wear themselves out at an early age? Folk, you know this is true. You've seen this. God's word is saying, be careful. Money has, the love of money, has an inherent danger to it that will drive, pull people, suck people in to a point that it can dominate their lives and ruin them spiritually. That it can destroy. Should we give you just a few illustrations? I'm going deep into history. We could be more modern. But these nine guys got together in the 1930s. They were some the nine some of them, uh, what they considered the most prosperous, the most uh, successful money makers of the early 19th, uh, the early 1900s. They got together as a group in Chicago to plan how they were going to make more money. All of them were at that time, they were independently wealthy. They were millionaires in the 1930s. But the millionaires needed to have more. Because how much satisfies? A little bit more. Let me, let me read what happened to these. And I'm going, if you're, if you're at all interested, right across from left to right by the, their stories. Ivor, Ivor Kruger, Kruger was the head of the greatest monopoly. He died of suicide. Jesse Livermore, the most successful speculator on Wall Street ever, died of suicide. Charles Schwab, president of the largest independent steel company at that time, died broken and in bankruptcy. Samuel Insel, the president of the greatest utility company, died penniless and a fugitive from the law. Howard Hobson, the president of the largest gas company of that time, went insane. Arthur Cotton, the greatest wheat speculator, died abroad, bankrupt, and of broken mind. Richard Whitney, president of the New York Stock Exchange, was convicted of fraud and went to Sing Sing Prison, where he died. Leon Fraser, president of the Bank of the International Settlements, died of suicide. Albert Fall, a member of the president's cabinet, went to prison for wrongdoing, was pardoned so he could go home and die at home. Now, we could give you even modern characters, updated individuals, who thought that fame would provide all the satisfaction. It doesn't. Fortune doesn't provide satisfaction. It's nice for a moment, but it is as wings that fly away. It is like trying to capture oil in your hand, and it sips through the fingers, Proverbs talks about. So you and I want to be careful getting caught up because the love of money, literally the love of silver, is the root of all evil, this passage says. And the passage goes on, it says, because of that, some have erred. Some have left the faith. He says, some have pierced themselves through. And he's repeating that idea of many sorrows. He's, we, we could run the scriptures and see this portrayed. Why did Lot leave Abram and go towards Sodom and Gomorrah? What was it that attracted Lot? It was the green fields, it says. It talks about how he saw that it was lusher lands towards Sodom and Gomorrah. He went there to get wealthier. He went there and soon in that lap of luxury, he's not just living in the pasture land, he's living in the city. And while he's living in the city, he wants power. He becomes one of the leaders in the gates that they look and they say to him, who are you to tell us what to do just because you're one of the, one of the leaders here? And he loses everything. He loses all his family. His two daughters escape with him, but they lose reputation. This man is just a story of just absolute degradation. Why? The love of money. 
We can run a few centuries beyond that. We could go to Achan. When the Jews are being prospered by the Lord, coming into the promised land, and they're attacking the cities of Ai and Jericho, and they get defeated. And God says there is sin in the camp. And the reason being is Achan. They do the, the lot. They find out it's Achan. When they were told to go in the city uh, there at Jericho that they were not to take anything. Don't take any of the wealthy the items like the coins or the clothes. Nothing. But Achan had gone in and grabbed some treasures, hid them in the basement of his tent. And when they go to the next city, they lose the battle. 36 men die at Ai. Why? Because of him. Because of his love of money and greed, he ends up losing his life along with his own family that apparently helped harbor the hiding of this loot. We jump a few centuries further. Gehazi, the assistant to prophet Elisha, or Elijah, Elisha, the prophet Elisha. Remember, Naaman comes to Elisha with leprosy and says, what do I need to do? I'll give you any money you want if you will heal me of the leprosy. And Elisha says, I'm not going to take any of your money. Instead, go down and dip in the Jordan River seven times. Naaman is upset by that, but he does it. And when he's healed, he again offers Elisha a reward for his leadership, his direction. And Elisha says, no money. I'm not taking any of your money. Well, as Elisha and Naaman go separate ways, Gehazi, Elisha's servant, thinks, well, if the boss doesn't take the money, I will. And he chases after Naaman. And when Naaman stops the caravan, he says, oh, does your master want something? Gehazi lies. And Gehazi says, my boss decided to take those gold chests that you offered. He'll take all of it. You know, give me it. I'll take it back to my boss. He's lying with the love of money. So Gehazi gets the riches. He takes them back to wherever he's staying. He hides the stuff. He goes and sees his boss, Elisha. And Elisha, the Spirit of God spoke to him. And he says, where were you, Gehazi? Do you think that God didn't see you? Being dishonest? The leprosy that came off of Naaman will now fall upon you. Does greed, can it destroy Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, remember, as I started, I said, this is for us. This isn't just for the politicians in Washington. This isn't just for the leadership, you know, at certain corporations. This is for the servants, even. This is for the widows, even. This passage was to the young men, the young ladies. It was to the believers who already should know better, but they get caught up with this greed. What did Jesus warn? He said that, he says, some people, they will hear the gospel. They will take it in. But then all of a sudden, because of the deceitfulness of riches, the gospel will be choked out. They won't keep serving the Lord. They won't keep growing in the Lord. It's an inherent danger when it comes to the love of money. So you got to think about it. Think about what, what's all the, well, one thing it says is making more money is not the answer. Usually making more money creates a little bit more pressures. Let, let me put it in. Let me put it in, in church terms. When I was in Minnesota training, there was a guy who was a pastor of a very successful church by our standards, church of you know, something like 1,500 people. And they asked him, they said, what's the difference between 100 people church and a 1,500 people church? And his response, 1,500 more problems that people have. Getting bigger doesn't mean everything is done and hunky-dory. It just means there's going to be more difficulties. It's just going to compound. That's true with finances. That's true with homes. That's true with possessions. Problems don't go away. It just means you're busier with them. Making more money is not how we'll please our own spirit, which is in the image of God. It, it, we're not going to please God with money. The real lesson here is practicing contentment is the first step to getting richer. The second step is what he says in the next verses, concentrating on the real riches, the real riches of life. He has said to Timothy already in this comment, he has said, okay, flee from those who are giving these false teachings. Watch out about the love of money. But verse 11, he says, but thou, O man of God. Now he's talking to you. He's talking to Timothy and all of you sitting here who desire to really follow the Lord. 
He's saying, I want you to do something different than what these people have been promoting. But you. That is, you don't get caught up with those things. Instead, you get caught up with godliness. Godliness is literally this, God-likeness. It is the idea of thinking God. It is the idea of mimicking God. It is the idea of acting like God. And he says, if you have contentment and you have godly actions, you will become really, really rich. You will be one that will enjoy God's favor. Now, what do you do to, be, to work on this godliness? Flee from the things already mentioned, the temptations, the snares, the love of money. But then he gives them a second thing. And the word he uses to follow after is a word for persecute in other passages. It is that idea of apprehending, catching something, someone, with a purpose. And he says, you chase after this. You make sure this is your goal. You make sure that you are running down righteousness in your life. You make sure that you are running after practical godlikeness day to day in speech, in work, in what you do. You make sure that you have faith. You run after this. You grab this. You apprehend trusting God more. You do the greatest of these you love. He says what you need to do is you need to have patience. It is the idea of being able to endure under great pressure. You stay loyal to the Lord. Apprehend, chase after, follow after meekness. Meekness is the word preas. It has the idea of just strength under control, self-control. So when you're upset, you don't fly off the handle. This is what you chase after. You don't make it your goal to be a millionaire by such and such a date and chase after it more than you should be making this your goal that I am going to strive and be more godly by such and such a time. I'm going to have more scripture memorized by that date in my life. I'm going to have read through the scriptures several times by that date in my life. That would be a more worthwhile goal for those who are pursuing godliness than evaluating your success by a bank account. Evaluate your success by how you have grown. How many, how many times you've witnessed, how many times you've read the scripture, how many verses that you're memorizing, how, many, how much have you invested in missions, how many missions trips. Work at those things that please the Lord first and foremost. How many times you'll teach a Bible study. Let that be your, your gauge of growth, not your bank account. Not the amount of cars you have. But rather, your service and your following after God. Then he says, fight the good fight. This is what it is on concentrating on godliness. The word, we get the word agony from. To stretch out. You know, like it's been this morning, where some of you got out of bed, you had agony as you were trying to stand, stretch. He says, this is what you do. You give energy towards what? He says, fight the good fight. Well, the word fight has what we understand right off the bat. We understand it's contending for truth in some passages. You want to know what's interesting? In the book of Hebrews, the word fight is translated run the race. The fight is the race. It is the idea that you are doing what God has told you to do. That you are keeping up with it, doing the work that God has given you, even in the face of opposition and difficulties, even when you have to stretch yourself, even when you're tired from the agony of Christian living, Christian service, reading, praying. That's where Paul ends up and he says, I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. It's a ditto. He's basically saying, I've done what God wanted me to do. I witnessed, I made disciples, I started churches. I did those things that I was called to do. Let me add to that this idea. You need to fixate on God's calling in your life. You need to fixate on God's calling. Lay hold on eternal life. The word lay hold is to grab. Just like we had before with that word for persecution. It's to put a strong grip and don't let go. You aren't releasing it. You're squeezing it tight. Lay hold on eternal life. He's not talking about grab onto salvation and hang on. He's talking to a guy who's already saved. He's not telling you here, sitting here, you know, you need to do something to get saved. You're already saved. 
He says, those of you who are saved, you grab on to the, the eternal life that God has called you to. The life, the spiritual life that God has called you to. That he talks about further in this passage that he says, where Paul writes and he says, I follow after to apprehend that which I've been apprehended for. God saved me for a reason. And I am working hard to become all that that reason is. That's what he means in this text. Fixate on the calling that you have professed before others. What does it mean that Timothy professed? I think the possibility is that Timothy, when he got baptized, he did what you did when you got baptized. You not only showed that you are that Jesus Christ died, buried, and rose again for you. But baptism in Romans 6 has this secondary idea. I am dying to myself, and I'm going to live for Jesus Christ. That's what you professed when you got baptized. If you've been baptized, which the Bible commands. You were to show what Jesus did to save you. And you were to be showing that you are going to live for Jesus. Timothy... You grab on to that which you told people you were going to do. You grab on to that and you remain faithful to that which God has called you to do. Young persons and some of you young adults, when you were in teen camp, you promised God that you were going to be faithful to him. You professed that. Are you living up to it? That's what he's telling Timothy. He's telling Timothy, this is what you said you would do. Fixate on it. Make this your goal of godly living. Follow through with it. Some of you stood here in years gone by. You stood here with your infants and with your toddlers. And you promised the rest of us. You professed before us. You were going to raise them for the glory of the Lord. You were going to train them in the things of the Spirit. Are you fixated on that? Are you still doing that? Some of you stood here in other spots. And in the marriage vows, we would ask you, men, are you going to be the spiritual leader of the home? Will you be a wife who is supportive? You profess that before crowds and family. Are you fixated on that? That's godliness, keeping your word. That's following through. That's doing what you said you would do. And God says if you really want to be richer, it starts with learning to be content. And then it's the idea of concentrating on godly living. Let me give you the third. The third thought, be careful with the riches he's already given you. Be careful with what he's already given you. And he warns then in the rest of this passage as he goes on and he says, and we're going to jump a few verses, jump down to verse 17. Charge them that are rich in this world. Now he's talking about your dollars. He's talking about your checking account. That they be not, and he gives some things. So he's talking to those who are rich, which brings us to this question. Okay, How is that possible that rich people could be in a church? Jesus had said it is going to be harder for somebody to get saved than an eye to, uh, a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Well, what this passage is saying is this thought, that God never said they can't be saved. In fact, rich people were in the church. In fact, God is not against rich people or against riches. He doesn't say riches are wrong. He says the love of money is what's wrong. Okay? God, rich people are not, and keep this, because this is our modern thought. This is what's happening with this twisted culture. The twisted culture that we have right now is saying rich people are evil. They should share their wealth equally with everybody. That's not true biblically. Rich people are not evil or damned just because they have riches. And poor people aren't automatically considered to be favored by God just because they're poor. It doesn't make any difference what's your classification of wealth. It's what's in your heart. Are you right with God? Are you righteous in the sense that your sins have been forgiven because you come to a Savior who has forgiven you of your sins because he died on the cross for you and paid your penalty of your sin? 
So we learn in this passage, having riches doesn't even remove temptations. Say to the rich people, and now the majority of us sitting in this room, we automatically say, well, he's not talking to me because he's talking to rich people like Pastor Binkley. He's not talking to me. (laughs) And we pawn it off on somebody else. Okay? Let me give you a stat. That might help you to clear up your thinking. This is from 2021. It's based on dollars that are designed, not necessarily the way we, we classify our dollars, but dollars that are worked through a whole system of cost of living and all those things. And so in this formula that comes out of United Nations, they come up and they say, okay, the dollars they're using are equal to American dollar idea, concept. Not in value, but in concept. So in concept... Okay, in the industrial countries of the world, which include us, the average world income is this per person. Okay, is on average fourteen hundred eight dollars a month or eighteen thousand a year. That's on average for us in that area. For peoples outside of the United States and UK, our average salary. Okay, uh, let me do this. Yeah, is. The worldwide, and now in the United States and the UK, it's 3,000, just those two countries. So the UK and the United States, we do better than the rest of the world as a whole. We almost double. But one-third of the world on this dollar average is at $2 a day. Are we Americans considered rich? By world standards, we are. We are filthy rich by world standards. Okay, so he's talking to us in this text. And in this text, we, who he's referring to, the people on the higher end of living, he warns us. He says, do not become high-minded. You have no reason to sit here and say, I have achieved because I'm so smart. I am so clever. I am so better than those other people who can't make big bucks the way I make big bucks. He's telling us from this text, don't be proud of what you've got. What you've got came from God. It's only by God. I'll show you tonight some verses that not only what you have, but your ability to get money is a gift of God. That's it. What we have is purely by the grace of God. We have no reason to brag about it. We have no reason to brag as a church that we've got money in the bank. That is only by the grace of God that we have anything. We have no reason to say we've got a nice building. It's only by the grace of God. It's only by God's goodness. We didn't do this. So he's warning us. He says, okay, understand that you and I don't become high-minded and proud over our houses, over our cars. They belong to God anyway. That's his first warning. His second warning is do not trust in uncertain riches. Isn't it interesting? What do we call savings And stocks and bonds. We put our money into securities. And what does God call it? Uncertain riches. Why does God say our securities are uncertain riches? Okay. Why does God call your clothes uncertain riches? In Bible days, your clothes would say you're wealthy. Okay. Why does God say your clothing is uncertain? They wear out. Sometimes we wear out of them. Okay. They don't. Why does God call your car uncertain riches? Why does God call your house an uncertain riches? Why does God call everything you've been putting in savings uncertain riches? Because the president's in office, right? Him and the Republicans have worked very well at helping inflation go skyrocketing. It's uncertain riches. And so we know it's uncertain, yes? What do we know about next month, next year, as far as the economy? It is uncertain, yes? No? So he's calling, says, these are uncertain riches that you have. Be very careful. You need to trust in the giver, not the gift, because the giver lasts, the gift doesn't. 
And so he's challenging us. He's telling us that he that trusts in riches will fall, but the righteous, they're going to flourish. He's told us the story Jesus did of the man who had all kinds of riches and said, I need more riches and more barns, so I'm going to tear them all down, and I'm going to build even bigger, and I'm going to say to my soul, eat, drink, and be merry, take and have your ease, because you can enjoy all of this stuff you put in your, in your portfolio for years and years, and you'll have a, just a wonderful life of just sitting around at the beach. And God says, you fool, this night your soul will be required. Then what happens to all of your stuff? Where's it go? And Jesus made it very clear. He says, so, and he says, so is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You need to be saved. First and foremost, have Christ as your Savior. Don't trust in those riches. Trust in the Savior. And he's telling, okay, rich people, don't feel guilty about your riches. On the flip side of this, I look at this passage, and I think it's, he's wonderful in balancing this out. He says, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things. Why? What does your Bible read? He gives us richly all things. Why? To enjoy. Is it wrong to have a nice car? No. Is it wrong to have a nice house? I'm talking to rich people. I'm talking to people who have these things. I'm talking to people who have garages. I told you when we visited years ago in Romania, one person came up who was in one of these poor little villages, and they said, is it true in America you have a house for your car? (laughs) What are you talking about? And the missionary said, a garage. He's like, yeah, I do. And I can't get my car in that garage because of all the stuff. (laughs) Is it wrong to have stuff? Is it wrong to have nice clothes that fit you? Okay. No. We can enjoy those things as long as we're content. And they're not our goal in life. And he goes, he says, and with them do good. Look at, all the, look at the, all the words he uses. He uses do good, be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Willing to communicate is the word fellowship, to be able to give to others. Okay? So he says, use your possessions. Rich people use your possessions for good works, for that which pleases God. Be generous to support what God wants, where God is concerned about, about people's in need where God is concerned about getting the gospel out to other regions. Get concerned about those things. To be rich or be willing to give. This is a conundrum in Scripture, but it's there. He that is bountiful shall be blessed, for he gives his bread to the poor. Give and it shall be given to you, for with the same measure that you give out, it will be measured to you again. Honor the Lord with the first fruits of your substance. He says, so then your barns will be filled with plenty and your olive presses shall burst with new wine. He says, he which sows sparingly in giving to help others shall reap also sparingly. He which sows bountifully shall reap bountifully. For God is able to make all grace abound to you that you, always having all your necessities and all things, may abound to every good work. There is this concept that God, if he can trust you with what riches you have to be charitable, he will give you riches. He goes further, he says, while laying up in store for themselves. I, I, I don't understand this fully. Other than what scripture says, there is this possibility of laying up in store. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he'll reward them. Someplace, somehow, God is going to reward us for the way we invest in charitable ministries. And God's going to reward in the future. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on this earth where moth and rust come up, but store up yourselves for yourselves treasures in heaven. I fully expect that what he's talking about is that when we get to heaven, God will give crowns, give rewards, and some of it based upon the idea, what did we do with our riches in this life? Did we hoard or did we help? And it's a challenge that he brings out. He said, if you want to be perfect, sell your possessions and you will have treasure in heaven. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one. We have the opportunity to put this into practice in the next few days, the next few weeks. We are approaching our March Missions Month. 
And during Missions Month, we have what we call Sacrificial Sunday. It is a day where we as a church are going to say that we are going to multiply. Just hang on playing for a moment, okay? Uh, We are going to multiply our normal offering by about 10 times. Some of us, instead of giving the tithe, will give everything else. Some of us will give all of it. Some will do whatever you decide. But we have an opportunity to actually do this, to buy $20, will buy a bag of food for a family for a week who's in war-torn Ukraine. We have the opportunity to invest in Bible translators and translations that you're going to hear about in this next month. Bible being put in tongues and in languages that have never received the Bible. And people getting a Bible for the first time in their own language. We're going to have the opportunity to help pay for individuals to go and teach classes in areas where pastors are trying to lead churches and they don't have any type of training whatsoever or limited training, and you are going to be able to help them get that training. We're going to have the opportunity to get gospel witness like the Navajo Redemption spread throughout all the areas of the Native American tribes in form of DVD, in their own language, by an Indian. We're going to have the opportunity to invest in children's clubs in areas like the Ukraine, the Philippines, in South America, in Africa. We're going to be able to invest in buying food for people who are in slums, where they go and they feed them a day's worth of food and give them the gospel. And we who are rich have the privilege of trying to invest in multiple ones of those. So we come and we say, okay, let's ask ourselves these questions as we close. The questions are real simple. Is it possible to be rich, according to the world, yet really poor now and in the next? Is that possible? You could have lots of money, but you are spiritually bankrupt before God. Because you're not saved. You're like the rich man that he said was a fool. You're like those individuals, even the believers... The believers in Laodicea. Remember what he says? He says that he, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth because you're neither hot nor cold, but you're lukewarm. He went on to make this comment to the believers. You say I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. You don't even know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind because your monies have blinded you. Second question is this. Is it possible to be poor in this world but really rich in other ways and in the next world. Yes. And that's where most of a lot of you are. That by standards of American standards, you're probably not the wealthiest class. But because you've called upon Christ and you're walking with the Lord, he says to the church, I know your works, your tribulation, your poverty. I know your poverty, but you're actually really rich. That's where you, many of you are. Your walk with the Lord, your rightness with the Lord, your sense of contentment and godlikeness. Then I ask this one Is it possible to be both rich in this world and rich in the next? Well, the answer to that is going to be in your lap. The bulk of us, we are rich. What will we do? with our riches over the next weeks.